Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. And John, I'm pleased to say, joins me right here, right now on the show. Hello, John. Hello. I am I'm so, so thankful and happy to be here. It's wonderful to be speaking to you. Um, where in the world are you coming from right now? That's a really good question. Uh, a lot of people have never heard of it. So I, I'm in the United States in a, in a place called Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is kind of in the middle of the Wild West um, at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. It's rancher, cowboy country. Um, you know, it's snowing out right now. It's very romantic. It's snowing and blowing. We're going to have 20 below wind chills here in a day or so. So we're getting the full Wyoming experience. That sounds amazing. And is that a part of America that you were born and bred in? Uh, my great, great, great grandfather moved here in 1885 and opened up a pharmacy before Wyoming, before it was even a state, before it was even civilized. And uh, we've, my family has been here ever since. I'm the last remaining uh, holdover, but uh, we've been here for, you know, 100 and some years. Wow, that is amazing. That is a very long time. Well, here on the show, we always like to go back to the beginning, and you've done a bit of that already. Uh, but tell me a bit more about life growing up and what your memories were of childhood. Yeah, uh, so I, I was born, uh, how do I explain it? I was born in a family of scientists, kind of. My dad was a pharmacist. Uh, like I mentioned, his dad's dad was a pharmacist. Dad's dad's dad was a pharmacist. My brother, I only have one other brother, he is an electrical engineer who works for Xbox, uh, very smart, uh, does things I can't even describe. They make computer chips. I'm not sure. It's all magic and uh, voodoo to me. I don't understand any of that. And my mom was a former like single room school teacher, very serious, uh, very serious lady, loved math, uh, loved academics. And then there was me, who was kind of the alien child born into this um, to prove that God has a sense of humor and likes uh, fish out of water stories. And uh, I was born into this uh, wonderful family who I didn't know what to do with them and they didn't know what to do with me. And it made for a lot of uh, wonderful moments of learning for all of us. Uh, Catholic, uh, born, uh, born into a very strict Catholic family. Um, and as we'll talk, you know, that for me has become a little bit less of a linear journey, journey for me, um, but born into a very strict Catholic family. Uh, and uh, I, my very first memories are of going to church with my family. In fact, one of the, you know, they we were talking about, I have, a, I have three boys now ranging between 22 and 16. It's like a feral wolf pack. And I was asking my 16 year old, what is his first memory? Because that always fascinates me. Is what is your first memory? And uh, he had some amazing uh, family memory of all of us, you know, in some trip when he was like five or six or something like that. My memory was getting pulled out of church and I think yelled at for screwing around during a sermon. Uh, that's my very first memory. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so you say your parents and your family were quite different to you and they were perhaps a bit more scientifically minded and you were a little bit more creative. Is that is that a good way of describing it? Probably. Yeah, I was definitely never I, I, I went to college. I went to high school, did every day, but academics and all of that was didn't feed me. The fruit from that tree was never very sweet for me. Uh, I, I jumped through the hoops to please other people. I, I went to school more, mostly just to go to lunch with my friends and try to make them laugh. 
during lunch. That was my goal. That's what I. That's what I. That's what I majored in uh, throughout yeah. my entire academics was uh, lunchroom laughter. So if I'd met you age sixteen or seventeen and asked you what you think you want to do as a career, what would you have said? That's a great question. I think well, so I, my parents uh, had me when they were pretty older. I think my mom and dad were in their early, uh, maybe 50s um, when I was born, maybe a little, maybe late 40s. But back in the 70s, you know, that was even kind of rare for people having children that late. So my parents were, by the time I was a teenager, were fairly tired. Um, and so television became my third parent in my home. Uh, back in the heyday of 80s television, I was a, I was a, I never missed a class of, the, of those sessions. And I would sit and Saturday Night Live was one of my favorite shows early on with Steve Martin and John Belushi and all the old classic. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be Steve Martin. I wanted to do stand-up comedy. I wanted to make people laugh. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. So if you would have asked me at 16 or 17, I would have said, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to be on TV uh, making people laugh because that's where I was being fed at that time. What did your parents make of that career aspiration? Uh, well, uh, there was a lot of foreshadowing for how we would have an incongruent kind of uh, relationship with that. <laughs> so when I was uh, seven years old, uh, another early memory I have is for some reason, I had a, a relative who thought it would be hilarious if they sent me a Charlie McCarthy ventriloquist doll for Christmas. And so like at Christmas time, my parents would normally, you know, books were very important and uh, things like that. I got this ventriloquist doll and we had a big family Christmas party that night. And I spent five hours on Christmas morning practicing a routine in which I could. So in the middle of this Christmas party, I got up and I did this Charlie McCarthy routine with me and this doll. And uh, my parents were absolutely mortified because you know, I, as a parent now, I look back and I kind of have the same maybe uh, neuroses or whatever, where I, I don't want my children to be thought of badly by other people. I get worried when someone criticizes my children because then I get I, I inherently get defensive. And I think my parents inherently got very worried when I was seven years old, when I was I, it, it was the first time they really I remember my dad saying that was the first time I've really seen you excited about anything. And so I would have, uh, they, they at an early age were concerned about this road I was on. And at 16 or 17, they were very concerned that I was going to do something rash. And when I was 20, I, so I was in college at this point at the University of Wyoming, which is here in the middle of, of Wyoming. It's, uh, and I was at college, it was my junior year. And I was calling my dad on the phone uh, he was at his pharmacy here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. We're only about 50 miles apart at this point. It probably felt like a, about uh, 8,000 miles apart because at this point I, I didn't really like coming home. And so, but I was calling my dad to let him know I was planning on dropping out of college and I was going to go to Chicago where they had these little offshoot second, it was called Second City where people went there and kind of, it was like the minor leagues for Saturday Night Live, where you would go and you would work these small comedy clubs, and then eventually maybe someone would discover you, and then you could get called up to bigger things. So I was planning on dropping out of college, 
And I was, I practiced a speech with my dad all morning long of how I was going to let him know on, you know, I was trying to explain it in a way he would understand that I was going to leave academia behind and pursue this dream. And I called him and within the first five minutes of our conversation, I made it through the small talk. And then I was about to tell him that I was going to be leaving when he told me that he had just been diagnosed with cancer that morning and asked if I would come back to Cheyenne, Wyoming to help run our family store. And in that moment was this crossroad moment of what do I do? And of course, you know, and he wouldn't have faulted me. We had a conversation about it later. I didn't feel trapped into it, but I, I decided to leave that behind in that moment thinking, oh, it'll be a year or so. I can just put it on hold for a year. And then I came back to Cheyenne. I ended up dead dropping out of college, came back to our hometown in which I became involved in our family business. And then I never left. Wow, a really uh, pivotal moment for you to choose to go back and I suppose to a certain extent to choose to put your family ahead of your career. Yeah, and I didn't really look at it as a career and that's kind of where I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I don't I I didn't really have ambitions of being like this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I I never think that way. I was like this is what I want to do right now in this moment and this is where this door is open for me now. Yeah. Uh, later on in life I became involved in improv uh and the the chief philosophy of that is saying yes and yes this is happening <laughs> and here we go. I just didn't know I was doing it <laughs> since I was 7. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that actually because I wanted to ask you what does success look like? What does success mean to you? How do you define that even now and and I suppose as well, what, what does making it mean? I, I don't have an answer for that. For me, so in the, I've never really had a ton of professional success that I, would, that I would consider professional success until the last year or two when my poetry and my writing has kind of blossomed beyond anything I would have ever expected. And I know we'll talk about it later, but this, uh, this writing journey and this, the way I write now is completely unexpected. I didn't have any infrastructure or plans for it. It's very organic. And so the last year and a half, I suppose I have really experienced true success in a lot of LinkedIn terminology. I have been invited to you know, do keynotes. I have presented at these major yoga writing centers across the United States, I have been asked to do things no one has ever asked me to do. I've run writing retreats, week-long writing retreats, things like that, that people would probably tab and say, oh, that is what success looks like. And I don't, and I don't really have an answer for what success looks like. I suppose for me, it's a peaceful heart. I suppose for me, it's finding this balance between my ego and uh, the spirituality and what God is calling for me. And that's where I'm trying to find success now. And that I'm still working on it. And as a comic, success for me really means, can I, can I make someone laugh for 10 seconds? And that's always been what it has been. We, at lunchrooms when I was in high school to now sitting with a mate at a, at a at a bar or sitting with my wife. Uh, my wife and I met each other when we were 16. Uh, we're about to be married 25 years and still making her laugh after all these years when she's heard all of my tired material, for me, feels like success. But I suppose that's why I never really have had a career in anything else because I don't really strive for anything else. 
Yeah, it's fascinating because, as you say, it has sort of all suddenly taken off. And I'd love to hear the story of, of how that happened. And we'll come on and, and talk about that in, in a moment. But, you know, presumably, even if it looked like a bit of an overnight success, there was an awful lot of hard work that, that went in kind of before before that could happen, if that if that makes sense. No, it does. There was a lot of interior work that was happening um, under the soil that I didn't know. There was a lot of reforming my ego and uh, my my mental health and things like that were happening underneath the soil before buds started coming out. And now all of a sudden, yes, there's a garden, but you're exactly right. There was a lot of things going on, a lot of work I was doing. And I did write for a few years where nobody cared. And I just kept writing and writing and writing and working at it. And yeah, success came from that. It, took, it did take a lot of hard work, but I just didn't know it was work at the time. So tell me the story then. As I understand it, it, it started really with Facebook, with these imagined conversations you were having between you and God, almost these kind of prayers and, and conversation back and forth that people really resonated with. And it's since gone viral and led to loads of opportunities for you. So so take me back to the beginning and, and how all this began. What was the genesis for this? So I would probably have to take you back a little bit before I even started writing, if that's okay. So I was born and raised Catholic, very strict Catholic family. When I came back after dropping out of college and helping working at our family store, and this was back in 1999, uh, 1998, a long time ago, I ended up working at our family store in which it would have been a great Netflix series because I had no business acumen. And all of a sudden here I was working with people that ha I had known since I was a little kid. And all of a sudden I was kind of helping managing and being in charge of, it was wild, but it wasn't enough to pay the bills because I was more or less kind of a, a volunteer. Small businesses are tricky and pharmacies are even harder. And so I was more or less a volunteer employee of our own store. So I got a job at a Catholic church um, working as a youth minister and, and kind of as a director of youth ministry, which was great because it was able for me to use some creativity and reaching young people. It was a way for me to take all these stuffy Sunday school lessons that I had remembered from years ago and trying to find a way to bridge that for younger people. Because that was one of the reasons that kept me involved in church when I was younger, was having uh, people in, in those positions who were able to translate faith for me. And so I took a job as that. But as soon as I took that job and I started working in the church, and I'm sure you've heard this from a lot of people who work in a church, sometimes you see, you get to see behind the scenes some things that don't always feel very church-like. And sometimes you bump into things like, oh, wow, that is not, it's a little, it's a little different than how I imagined what was going on behind the curtains. And so immediately, once I started working for the church, I had these little seeds of doubt kind of start growing. And I didn't know at the time, but I started feeling kind of sick and not feeling well. And that was the first time I actually started questioning, what is this faith? What is my relationship with God? And now I'm talking to young people and passing this on. And I even felt, I felt like such a hypocrite. And so I worked for a church for like three or four years. And then eventually I moved over to our pharmacy full time, but I carried that hypocrisy and that doubt I felt at the time with me. At, into just working at our store. And then my wife and I had our first child, um, Noah. And he, I hadn't been around, I didn't have any young brothers or sisters. My wife didn't either. He was our first, he was the first baby I probably really held. And 
about a year or two later, he was diagnosed with autism. And for the first two years, he was, had, had he been our third child, we would have seen the warning signs early. We would have been had, had benchmarks and say, oh, okay, yes, of course, there's something amiss here. But every doctor we spoke to, and this is the year 2001, there wasn't a whole lot of, here in Wyoming at least, there wasn't a whole lot of education of what autism was back then. It, it wasn't, it, that had not blossomed the way it is now and the, the research and the resources that are available. And so my wife and I, were, were, we had a child who was two years old, who was diagnosed with autism. The doctor said he will likely never live independently. He will never speak. He is, um, you're gonna have to rework the way you look at being a parent. And I remember being in the doctor's office when they gave, gave us that, and we were in Denver, Colorado, which is about two hours away. And they gave us that diagnosis and it broke me in half, even though we kind of knew something was coming, it, it shattered everything because here I had been this really devout Catholic. I hadn't missed a, a day of uh, a weekend of church. I had worked for a church. I had deposited all this good will into this well. And I went to the well in this moment of crisis to start drawing things out from it. And it felt empty and I couldn't, I was angry. And I was sad. And on our drive home from the doctor's office, I was grieving the loss of my child who was sitting right behind me in a car seat. He was right there physically, but I was grieving everything that I thought we were going to miss. His first kiss, I was grieving a possible ever getting a job, all those milestones that you want your child to have. All of a sudden, was, he, I was told he was never going to have that. And so that was another fracture point in my faith journey. And on that drive home, my wife was already using the yes and philosophy of improv. And she was talking about, okay, we're calling these doctors. We're going to try this. We're going to try this. We're going to try this. And she was already mama bearing, being the mama bear and going forward. And I was stuck in this heartbroken, how could this happen? Cliche, why God are you doing this to me? I thought we were buds kind of thought. And, and it took me about three or four years to catch up with my wife who she invested her entire life into this diagnosis. She was a culinarian at the time. She was a certified chef. She stopped doing that and became an autism specialist. She now works, years later, she works for the school district and she turned that moment and changed her whole life around for it. For me, I was stuck for about three or four years, angry at God, wondering why I had been, where my faith had led and why there was nothing there for me now. I prayed and prayed and prayed. And my relatives, well-intended, were asking me, telling me to pray for God to take this from us. And it wasn't happening. And I became, my faith definitely shattered in that moment. And then we flash fast forward about another 10 years. So during that time, my parents had died and I kind of had helped be their doula into, in, into heaven. And I had to close our family store also within kind of a decade of that time, all the guilt and all the pain that comes from being the one who was doing all of that, or my, my dad dying, my mom dying, and then closing this 120 some year old business that had been a staple in our community. And so, but then I was able to say, now I'm a father to a special needs child and that's what I'm going to be. Because here was a person I didn't have a job, uh, that I, I didn't have a career, I didn't have ambitions, but I knew I was a dad to a child who needed me. 
And then about in 2015, our son Noah made some miraculous strides through his courage, through his hard work, through the uh, through miracle, I don't know. And all of a sudden he emerged from this cocoon. And you know, now it's 2022. He's at the University of Wyoming where I once was and dropped out and he is living independently and having his own experience. And it was amazing. But in 2015, when this all started coming, I had put my last bits of identity of who I was into being someone who needed to be on call for this child. And all of a sudden I didn't need to be on call for him. And I didn't know who I was. I, I didn't know if I was Catholic anymore. I didn't know if I was funny anymore. I didn't know, uh, I, I wasn't in charge of a business. I couldn't hang my hat on that. And now I wasn't needed to be the resource for my child that I was. So I was, all those seeds and things and foreshadowing before my doubt, everything surfaced in this 2015, 2016. And I was so angry at myself. I was so angry at God. And I went, to, I, I did what any rational man does, I guess. I went to Facebook and I started airing those grievances, but using my comic background, uh, which I was still doing comedy, even in the midst of all this, I was teaching improv and uh, you know doing things like that and doing stand-up. I was still doing those funny things, trying to maintain those funny things. So I knew I was going to bring this out to Facebook and I don't know why I was compelled to do it, but I did it in these conversations with God in which I would show up in a very transcript oriented way and complain to God in a lighthearted way about my life. And at first it was about God and I would have conversations about why I shouldn't wear skinny jeans or how my diet is going or what was on TV the night before. And, uh, Eventually, the conversations became much more serious from there. But it all started as a way of just poking fun at my faith crisis. It started as a way of poking fun at the self-help movement because I had immersed myself in every self-help book I could find. I read every spiritual book. I had read uh, Dark Night of the Soul 30 times. I would immerse myself in anything to try to pull me out of this funk, and I couldn't find anything. So I, I brought it to Facebook to have these conversations in real time. And at first they were benign and silly and ridiculous. And then the very first time I ever acknowledged to myself that I had depression was in one of those conversations. So it was years of you struggling, having been through so much with your family, with your son, that autism diagnosis of just uh, a lot of hard life stuff happening to you and, and that depression. But clearly you're not in that place anymore. So what changed? How did you find yourself coming through this onto the other side? Well, there was not one singular moment. Oh, there, there maybe is that one. When I typed out, so it, it had been a long time coming, this breakdown and different fracture points in things, whether it was, I didn't get to live the life I thought I was going to live. And two, then, you know, the, the death and the closing death of my family and the closing of the store and the diagnosis of our son. And all of a sudden here I am in my forties and now I don't know who I am. It was very cliche midlife crisis, all of that in one big breakfast burrito. 
But there was that moment when I was sitting there and I was having the, you know, my fr people were starting to follow along a little bit on these conversations about 2016, 2017 of these little benign conversations between me and God. And when I typed out, I think I have depression. And I had been in counseling. I had spoken. I, I had read books on psychology. I had acknowledged that perhaps maybe someone like me could feel have depression. But I didn't ever agree to it until I wrote it. And it was sitting there flashing at me in that silly little Facebook cursor, that little box flashing at me. I think I have depression. And I should probably mention, I don't believe I have this direct channel to God. I know there was a CBS show called uh, God Friended Me or something that came out in 2018 or 2019, where apparently God makes a Facebook account and interacts with people. I never watched it because I felt like they owed me royalties. Um, for that idea, but I was, I, 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 I didn't, I don't ever think, oh no, I have this direct yeah. channel yeah. with God and everything I'm writing is straight from God. I don't believe that. And I don't want anyone to have any misconceptions that I believe I am, you know, there's no burning bush talking to me, but I remember typing those like, well, what is God going to say to that? Right. And I was so worried because everything else I had heard was, okay, it's, you need to pray harder. You're not praying the right way. You need to, you need to find a way to find God. And, and this is kind of on you to do this. And I remember I had all this other baggage that I brought to that conversation. And in that moment, the only thing that I typed out for God to say was, no matter that, I love you. And it was this relational clicking of a light that happened for me. I think my relationship with God has always been very formal, had always been very, I'm coming to this buffet or this amazing restaurant, and God is the chef, and there's a hierarchy here of I need to crawl in and beg for being seen. And this was different. This was a relational moment that I hadn't experienced before. And whether it was true or not, or God-inspired or not, it opened up this floodgate. Well, all of a sudden, I started really communicating and praying in a way with God that was real and raw and honest and not feeling like, okay, I need to do 10 Hail Marys and then I have to jump through this hoop. And then maybe I can hand this parcel of grievances or Thanksgiving or whatever it is to God because I've jumped through all these hoops. No, it became this very organic, free-flowing conversation. Um, and that was the very, that conversation alone was the spark because after I, I and I never knew why I was called to po put these on Facebook. It was, have you, I might be dating myself. There's a movie called Close Encounters of the Third Kind, one of Spielberg's first movies years and years ago. But in it, Richard Dreyfuss becomes obsessed with the Devil's Tower. It's a mountain in Wyoming of all places. So it's probably why I gravitated to it. He had never visited it. He had never been to it. He just had these visions of it that came out of nowhere. And he became so obsessed with it that he started building it like out of clay in his house or he started painting pictures on the wall of it. And at one point during dinner, he made a mashed potato mountain of it in front of his family of Devil's Tower, this place that he had no reason or he was just, he had this compulsion to just keep obsessing about it. And eventually he visited it and it changed his life. For me, it was the same thing with Facebook. I didn't set out to want to put my, my real life out for the world for everyone to see. I, I, as a comic, you don't want to bum people out. You don't want people to worry about you. I didn't want people to call and say, hey, 
you know, we're worried about, I, I didn't want that. That's the opposite of what someone who wants someone to make people laugh wants. But I had this, just this, I, I just felt I have to make this public and transparent. And when I had that post talking about my depression for the very first time, my finger hovered over the publish post button for about five minutes thinking, what will this, you know, I was only having maybe a hundred people follow me. And I thought, if I post this, what are my, what's my old roommate going to think? What's my wife going to think? What are people going to think about me? But that close encounters of the third kind mashed potato compulsion I had, it's like, no, just trust me, post it. I posted it. And within five minutes, I was getting messages from strangers and things like that. And people like that I'd never met, not just friends and family sympath sympathetically, you know, checking in with me. But people I had never met saying, yes, I understand that. That's me too. Specifically men who wrote me privately to say, thank you. I'm, it was so refreshing to hear a man say that they're struggling. And yeah. that for me became the spark to say, the more vulnerable I, I bring myself to this project that started, who knows how, the more vulnerably I bring myself, the more real I bring myself and the more sometimes I even bring my frustrations, my human condition concerns to my relationship with God, the more I was real about that, not just painting it as this perfect image of relationship between God and myself, the more people resonated and the more people felt fed. And in turn, the more I felt fed. I didn't realize how alone I had felt in my faith and my doubts, in my, in my shaky relationship with God and how much anger I had in my own mental health journey. I didn't know how isolated I felt until all of a sudden I connected to strangers who felt the same way. And I mm -hmm. think that's not why Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook. Uh, <laughs> he, had other, he had other motivations, I'm sure. Um, but for me, and I know there's a ton of problems with social media and it can be a swamp and it can be gross. But for me, it probably saved my life mm -hmm. being able to have this interaction with readers of, P of the things I was posting. Yeah, it's an amazing story. I, I think on a serious level, how your story demonstrates that it's it's not about having to jump through various spiritual hoops and religious practices, but actually there's an element of a personal relationship you can have with God and how you've discovered that for yourself and really how it's changed your life. I, I suppose the more flippant reason it's great to hear your story is just it's it's lovely to hear a story involving social media that isn't just dark and depressing. Right, right. And, and you know, I, 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 I now teach writers groups and I go in and talk about my writing experience of how and how this has changed my life. Writing in this personal way changed my life, but it doesn't necessarily, and I explained this to other writers, it doesn't mean you have to go to Facebook and share every skeleton you have in your closet about what's going on. But for yes. me, it was a simple act of me reading the words I was writing, these things yeah. that were trapped like, like popcorn kernels in the back of my teeth that I didn't know were bothering me until I was able to get back there yeah. and floss with a pencil and a pen and all of a sudden, it's like, yes, that makes more sense to me. Yeah. Um, and for me, writing is a form of prayer now. It is how God and I kind of communicate the best between each other. Yeah, so I thought it'd be great just to give people a bit of a taste of how this really works, what it looks like in practice. So I'm on your social media feed, on your Instagram, and this is something you posted just a few weeks ago. Here's what it says. Hey, God. Hey, I thought we had a deal. What are you talking about? You said you weren't ever going to give me more than I could handle. 
God replies, I haven't. And you reply, you and I must have a pretty different idea on what it is you think I'm capable of handling, apparently. And so, you know, I don't know how you categorize that. What is that? Is that uh, it's an imagined conversation? There's a bit of theology. There's a bit of there's a bit of humor. There's there's lots going on there, isn't there? Yeah, it's so when I first started writing this way, it feels like training wheels at first because there were very these structured conversations where God would, you know, I would say, hey, God, and it would start the conversation and then God would respond. And then we would have just a conversation you might have with a trusted friend at a coffee house in which you're sharing your life and they're going to give you pieces of wisdom and thought. But behind all of it was love. It was never shame. It was never, you know, hellfire. It was never, you're not good enough. It was never any of that that I brought maybe possibly from my own upbringing or maybe my own wanting to carry that baggage. But it was all based out of a relationship between someone who loves a child, a father and a child or a a mother and a child, however you wanted to look at it. But it was always in the safe confines of this transcript of, hey, God, hey, John, and we would go back and forth. And it very felt very safe for me. And I have done about probably 15, 1600 of those little conversations. And when I started doing it in 2016, you know, I only had a few hundred people had been following me along and it wasn't paying the bills, obviously doing something like that. So I, I had to take other jobs on and I became a crime reporter um, for a local place here. I was covering city councils and crime and it was not great. I didn't love it. Uh, but it made me a better writer and it uh, it helped, you know, keep the lights on in the house. But in the meantime, I was still squeezing in these conversations, all I could of these moments between me and God. And they were always based on how I felt in that moment. I never wrote three days later after thinking something. I was never like an autopsy. It was like, oh, I had a really bad day yesterday. I'm going to write about that bad day. I wrote as I was feeling that now. So in that conversation uh, you were referencing, I felt that while I was reading that, while I was writing that, that's exactly what I was going through. I stopped what I was doing to go write that conversation because a lot of the time I don't know what it is I'm actually feeling. It's unsettled and it's like a tied knot inside of me. And writing those conversations was a way of me getting my thumbs in there and untangling the knot. And it's like improv. I never know where those conversations are going when I start. Like when I start, hey, God, hey, John, I don't know where it's going. I just know how I feel. And I bathe myself in that feeling while I write it. And so I I was writing those conversations for years. uh, And then the pandemic came along. And I had written a post in 2017 or 2018 that, you know, about two or 300 people thought was great. And that was nice. I was, oh, wow, 200, 300 people like this conversation. And it was about changing. Um, I was talking to God about how I was um, afraid to change my life and make changes in my life. And the conversation was God telling me, you don't have to change who you are. You just have to be become the person you were made to be, a person who's not afraid to live their life with purpose, a person who's not afraid to serve other people. You don't have to change to become those things. You were already made to be that. And I'd written that post in 2017 and a few hundred people liked it. And was, okay, that was great. I reshared it again in 2019 um, on my Facebook page and it went viral. And it was the very first time anything I'd ever written kind of exploded. And from there, pe- atheists, people who have no religious background, pe- uh, people from different faiths, 
it, it became more than it became more than I had imagined in that and just came to this post and it's still being shared on Facebook today. Um, years later, you know, million, it's been shared. What are they? I had someone analyze this uh, with this marketing group about 2.6 million times. It has been shared just on Facebook alone. Uh, it's been turned into, you know, little small little plays. People have done it for theses and whatever. I'm not the super smart person. I didn't write that because, oh, I thought this is a really impressive piece and I'm a really impressive person. I, I wrote it because that's how I felt that day. And a few years later, then it exploded. And so right about that time in 2021, these conversations were starting to die on the vine a little bit. Like I, I felt like, oh, they're getting tired. I wasn't able to write these. I would show up and say, hey, God, and the conversations were very stilted. And I started getting angry all over again. I thought, well, wait, no, I thought this was how it was going to work between me and God. Now I was able to flush out my life like this. And maybe in the time I could show other people they're not alone and, you know, help someone else while I'm helping myself. And then that format kind of faded away and God, we didn't need the training wheels of, Hey God, Hey John anymore. And then it came straight poetry just started coming from there. And I didn't read poetry. I I I probably got C minuses. Uh, I got bad <laughs> marks in any English class I would have had. I remember taking uh, poetry something in college, and I think I squeaked by. I don't understand poetry. I didn't read it, but I was writing it, and that has exploded again in the last year. Um, um, I'll give you one great example. Um, let's hear it. Let's post, hear some of it. Yeah. It, it was a it was a post uh, about a year and a half ago in which um, I was at a coffee shop. Uh, we were a single car family and my wife was working. It was summer school, it was August of 2021. And I had just started really realizing, okay, I'm writing poetry or lyrics or whatever this is, um, psalms, journal entries, dream journal entries, whatever you wanted to call it. And so I was, I, I was having a minute, a little bit of a panic attack. It was like 11 o'clock in the afternoon. And I sat down at the small little coffee shop and I was, I didn't know why I was nervous. It was just one of those, the world, everything, news headlines, the way people were treating each other. Um, it was just all unpaid bills, whatever I could think. It was all weighing on my back. And I sat down at this coffee shop and I did my, what I always do. I thought, okay, I'm going to write about how I feel without knowing where it's going, without knowing what the point of this is. And I'm going to share it on Facebook because apparently that's what I was doing now. And so I sat down and I wrote this poem in about 30 minutes and um, I typed it out. And then what I do is, and I write it unedited. I don't stop at any point to go back and think, oh, is this impressive enough or you know, whatever. I, because if I overthink and edit, I'll stop and then I won't do any of it. So I, I wrote it out without really thinking about it closed my laptop, and then I had to rush to pick up my wife from work. And then by the time I had checked Facebook again that night, it had been shared about a thousand times. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Look at that, a thousand times. A, a day later, it had been shared 10,000 times. By the weekend, it had been shared 100,000 times. And now this one has been shared millions of times. It's been turned into a circus act. It's been turned into dance routines with ballet companies. It has become a child like my my child who's 22 now, who has its own life of its own out there doing things beyond me writing it. 
I, I, it's a good example of things you put on Facebook. You know, you have to be careful with the things you put on Facebook because everybody can see it. But in this case, it became something that grew into this wonderful, this wonderful sunflower that I never would have expected, but only because I wrote, I think from emotion and people connected with about how, and I think it, it spoke to them on that. So I'll, I'll read this one if you don't mind. Please be great to hear it. Um, yeah. Okay. And it, I don't name my poems ever, uh, which has frustrated a lot of publishers and people. I, I, I don't like naming them because I feel like they also have wet paint on them. Uh, and I like to go back and still mess around with them. Even though I published them in books, I still don't name them. And it's, uh, I was no help in naming our children either, my wife will say. So this has been a lifelong <laughs> problem. Um, but this is a poem that uh, I wrote in the middle of a panic attack. My brain and my heart divorced a decade ago over who was to blame about how big of a mess I've become. Eventually, they couldn't be in the same room with each other. And now my head and heart share custody of me. I stay with my brain during the week and my heart gets me on weekends, but they never speak to each other. In fact, they just give me the same note to pass between each of them every week and the notes they pass between each other, they always say the same thing. They say, this is all your fault. On Sundays, my heart complains about how my head has let me down in the past. And on Wednesdays, my head lists all the times my heart has screwed things up for me in the future. They blame each other for the state of my life. And well, there's been a lot of yelling and crying. So lately I've been spending a lot more time with my gut who kind of serves as my unofficial therapist. Most nights I sneak out of the window in my rib cage and I slide down my spine and I plop myself down in my guts plush leather chair that's always there for me. And I just sit, 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 sit until the sun comes up. But last evening, my gut asked me if I was having a hard time being caught between my head and my heart. I said that I was. I said, I just didn't think I could live with either of them anymore. I said, my heart is always sad about something that happened yesterday, and my head is always worried about something that may happen tomorrow. My gut just squeezed my hand, and I continued. I said, I just can't live with my anxieties of the past, and, or my, I can't live with my mistakes of the past or my anxieties of the future. My gut just smiled at me and said, in that case, I think you should go live with your lungs for a while. And I was confused and the look on my face gave it away, but my gut continued. It said, if you're exhausted about your heart's obsession with the fixed past and your mind's focus on an uncertain future, then your lungs are the perfect place for you. There's no yesterday in your lungs. There's no tomorrow there either. There is only now. There is only inhale. There is only exhale. There is only this moment and there is only breath. And in that breath, you can rest for a while while your heart and your head work out their relationship. So this morning, while my brain was busy reading tea leaves and while my heart was staring at old photographs, I packed up a little bag and I snuck down to the door of my lungs. And before I could even knock, she opened the door, and with a gust of wind and a smile, she embraced me and said, Darlin, what took you so long? And 
when I wrote that poem, that was where the words I needed to read. I was stuck in yesterday and this guilt I had still, I was starting to be maybe become considered a successful writer, but I never wanted to really be a writer. I didn't know what success meant. We talked about that earlier. And I had all this guilt of like, maybe I should have been an engineer. Look at my brother. He's, you know, all these, he has a timeshare. My gosh, that would be amazing. I can't even <laughs> spell that word. And then I had worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. And I was stuck in this impossible place that we all are, especially over the last five or six years where things are out of our control and we're stuck between, oh, the shame of the past and the abject terror, what the future brings. Yeah. And yeah. It, it causes us not to be able to breathe. But in that moment, I really believe God was telling me the answer is right here in your breath. It's in this moment that you're living in right now. Find the miracle in this moment. And I, I believe that that poem was written as a prayer for me to survive the next day or two and to buoy yeah. myself. And without any hubris at all, because I, I, again, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm a monkey in an airliner mashing buttons. But I think God used me in that moment to reach out to other people who felt the exact same way that I did. And Absolutely. to give them a little bit of a prescription to get through maybe the next 10 minutes. Yeah, it's an amazing poem and great story behind it. Thank you so much for sharing. I'd love to bring it back a little bit to your own personal faith and just where you're at on your spiritual journey. You mentioned, obviously, growing up in a very strong Catholic background, but you said you you lost your faith somewhere along the line. And I'd love to know where you're at now, because obviously these conversations you're having with God, you're not claiming they are literally God speaking. You're not claiming that these are exactly the words that, that God would say. It's It's more subtle than that. But nevertheless you are doing theology on some level because you are imagining what God might say in a particular scenario or situation to you personally. So, so where's that coming from? Are you drawing on your, on your Catholic roots there? Uh, would you still call yourself a Catholic? Do you go to, to church? Where, where are you at with, um, with your own faith personally? Do you, do you have a faith? I, I imagine it probably started, I imagine no matter what I would say, there is some Catholic bias written in there. I mean, I went to, I went to Catholic school growing up. I, I worked at a Catholic a church. Um, so I imagine there probably is some Christian Catholic bias in there, um, unintentional, because early when I started, I really wanted to intend this to not make a lightning rod. God is such a lightning rod word, especially on social media, that yes. I didn't want every of these things to become conversations about the nature of God or which faith is more important than another faith. I didn't want to turn this into a, um, a, a trench warfare between people who sometimes... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing it hasn't, right? Because normally if you open up Facebook and you say God is... And whatever you write will follow huge amounts of debate and discussion and argument. And it's amazing that hasn't happened. And your posts, your posts have not gone viral because there's been arguments and people shouting at each other. They've gone viral because people have genuinely found this helpful. And that is really quite amazing when it comes to what you might expect your post to do on, on Facebook. It's actually been a very loving community you've created where, where people find this helpful and there isn't just lots of arguing. It, it's definitely intentional where I have, I have made sure to not put anything that my, that I, my dogma, that is part of my, probably my spine of my book that I, I put it in there because again, early on when I started working at a church and I had, and I find late now that I'm, I'm, flirting with 50, 
I look back at the doubts I had in my mid-20s because I was an idealistic Catholic where everything was uh, sunshines and unicorns and faith was, you know, I, I, I was a great little Catholic boy. I, I, it all worked for me. And then when the proverbial manure hit the fan uh, and I started like life started increasing the difficulty level and setting, then for me, I went back to this Pollyanna way of looking at my faith and it was not managing the stress test very well. It was having to get off the, uh, the treadmill very quickly and before it had a heart attack. And so, but I was so angry about this doubt and shamed about this doubt I had that I, I shut off from my faith. Like, I think I was going, but none of it meant anything because I thought I looked at my doubt or my questioning as uh, something to be afraid of. But now that I'm approaching this uh, midway part of life, I look at my doubt as a way of God was inviting me to keep digging and keep exploring. Um, and the, even in my Catholicism, do, do I consider myself Catholic? I still attend Catholic Catholic services, maybe not as regularly as I do. And sometimes I can go and I can get distracted by something somebody might say behind a hot microphone or something like that, that might feel incongruent to how I see life. But I'm still, I still find myself attached to that, if nothing else, but for tradition between to connect myself with my family that's long gone. Um, but I, 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 I I have found that God, what, what has taught, I've learned is God exists outside of the small box that I had put God in when I was a teenager or in my early 20s, that God is so vast and wonderful and mysterious that God, the doubt I felt was God just saying, peek outside the small little window you're looking through, and you'll be amazed at where you're going to be able to find me. And when I say I did a writing retreat um, it ended up being a spiritual writing retreat for people who had no spirituality and who had no background of faith. They were uh, Most of them were Christians who were not at all practicing at all, but we sat down and we wrote these kind of prayers for one another and ourselves for a weekend, and I felt God in that, and that I felt, I felt reconnected to my own Christianity and my own faith by engaging with people who had different I, you know, when I was growing up, I was, my Catholic faith, I didn't have a lot of exposure with other Christian religions. I live in a town that doesn't necessarily have a variety of Christian faiths here. So I, I was ignorant and unexposed to other beliefs. And the more I have met people and built relationships with people and, and listened to them, and that's when the best thing about social media is it's amazing how you talked about when I write these posts that it doesn't turn into the civil war trenches of people killing each other in the Facebook feeds. It turns out to people just sharing their own stories and their own experiences and their own doubts. And it's from all sorts of walks of life. And in doing so, I have found God and people I would never, I found, I found pieces of God like a mosaic in all these other people that I'm able to bring back to my own faith and it's made it richer. It hasn't made me, oh, maybe God, it hasn't, my question of faith isn't about God existing or God uh, or, or the divinity of God. It's more of my own place in God's creation. That's where my doubt was. And the more I'm experiencing this, whatever this journey I'm on, the more I'm becoming much more comfortable in this doubt that I have because it's this doubt that keeps me writing. It's this doubt, or you could call it curiosity, 
that keeps me wanting to keep looking for God in places that I never would have normally done before. What does the average day look like for you? Is there such a thing? Uh, I try to, um, my brain is of such, it's, it's a little bit of a leaky colander that I need to have some sort of structure I found. And so what really happens is I have created a three hour writing window every morning in which I don't have any expectations. I don't say I need to write something that's gonna go viral. Um, I, and this is what I was doing before. Now I write, I do this full time. It's become such a blessing in my life that once I've started, these posts really started moving their way around the world. People start, I started putting my poems and things into books and people bought them and supported, which has been amazing. And then I've been able to supplement by teaching and doing things like that, which has really been wonderful. But it's the same practice I was doing when I was a crime reporter two or three years ago. From 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m., I sit down with a pen and paper without knowing where I'm going. And I take a deep breath and, and I just kind of pray over the paper. And whatever comes, comes. And most of the time, it's not even paper. It's just that Facebook box sitting there. And I just type exactly how I feel in that moment. 99% um, of the time, it's straight to Facebook without me going back and making sure I have a semicolon, which I still don't know what they do. Um, <laughs> or, and I go back and I, I don't edit it because I want it to be the exact way I've been doing it, where it's just pure heartfelt writing without ego. And so that's the same practice I do. And for me, it's my morning Vespers. For me, it's my, uh, the way I pray. And I'm sure a strict theologian would sit down and say, no, that's not, you can't pray that way. But that's how it's, that's how it's working for me. And I will say my faith life has never been stronger. Uh, my, my connection to God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit has never been stronger than when I have used this as a practice. And I don't feel shame in it. Um, I did for a while thinking like, well, I cannot believe as a 45-year-old man, I go to family reunions or class reunions and people are, oh, go, I'm a lawyer. Oh, I'm a, I'm a bit, I'm an accountant. What do you do, John? I type conversations to God on Facebook. Oh, okay. Well, you, there's a, you, you know, we're going to move over here now. Like I used to feel such shame in talking about that, but I don't anymore because for me, it's like two Legos finally clicking together and yeah. I feel connected to something I've been wanting to my whole life since the moment I was wanting to go to Second City. I think the reason I wanted to do that because I just want people to feel better. I wanted when I make people laugh, I feel better. And when people laugh, I feel like it's a service and they're feeling better. And it's just a different way this gift has manifested itself in my life. Sure, it's not always mm -hmm. fun and funny. It's definitely beyond anything. I, I, again, don't read poetry. I don't know anything about it. I, I, I'm very reticent to even call myself a poet, but it's the same practice. I'm giving something to somebody else that makes me feel better and it makes them feel better. And I believe it's, it's part of, I believe it's part of the mystical body. It's been such a pleasure to talk, John, and hear your story. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. It's been an honor to get to hear all that God is doing in you and through you. Oh, my gosh. I honor to be here. Wonderful questions. Uh, yeah. Thank you for letting me tell my story. I, I'm really grateful. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Profile Podcast. If you did enjoy that conversation, could you just take a couple of seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast? If you're on your phone right now, you should be able to see as a section where you can give us a rating out of five stars and write a short review. If you do want to take a moment to do that, we'd be so grateful because it helps other people to discover the show. Hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll see you same time, same place next week right here on The Profile. Take care. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.